Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And we're going to start rather sombre, a period of history that doesn't reflect too well on humanity. British soldiers entering the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. And I'm going to get Lilith Thwaites to read from page 391. A young soldier climbs onto an empty wooden box and shapes his hands into a megaphone. He speaks in rudimentary German. This camp has been liberated in the name of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and her allies. You are free. Dieter elbows Margit. Her friend is paralysed. She can't speak. Although she has no strength left in her, Dieter manages to get up on her feet and rests one hand on Margit's shoulder and the other on her mother's. And finally, Dieter utters the sentence she spent her entire childhood waiting to be able to say. The war is over. The librarian of Block 31 begins to cry. She cries for all those people who couldn't survive to see this. Her grandfather, her father, Freddie Hirsch, Miriam Edelstein, Professor Morgenstern. A soldier walks towards the survivors in her area and he's shouting at them in strangely accented German, saying that the camp has been liberated and they are free. Free! Free! A woman drags herself along the ground until she can embrace the soldier's foot. He bends down, smiling, ready to receive the thanks of the liberated. But the gaunt woman says to him with bitter reproach, Why have you taken so long? The British troops were expecting to be received by a euphoric populace. They were expecting smiles and cheers. They weren't expecting to be met with complaints, sighs and death rattles. People crying with a mixture of joy for having been saved and deep sorrow for husbands, brothers, uncles, friends, neighbours. So many people who haven't been liberated. There are some soldiers whose faces show compassion, others incredulity, and many disgust. They never thought an internment camp for Jews could be this quagmire of bodies. The living are even more skeletal than the dead. The English thought they were going to liberate a camp full of prisoners, but what they found is a cemetery. Well, this is a story of many Jews in Central Europe, firstly interned into ghettos and then onto concentration camps, mostly to death. But Dita survived. Where was she originally from? She was originally from Prague. Her family was from Brno and then moved to Prague. And she grew up uh, in Prague, in, in basically in what I guess was then an area quite popular with Jewish families. Well, here she is. Well, she's went from there into the um, Drizen, the ghetto, and then onto Auschwitz. But her ability with languages allowed her to become an assistant in Block Thirty One. Now, why was this block for kids set up? The block was a block inside another rather unusual setup in these camps, uh, the family camp. Um, and what it probably was was that. Um, it became clear to the Germans, as, as word was starting to get out about what was happening with Jews and other undesirables, that um, they needed something a bit like Theresienstadt had been, mm. something that would be a showpiece to show that, no, 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 you know, here we have families, we have children, people wear their own clothes, everybody's happy. Mm. And so they set up the family camp. 
And inside the family camp, um, one of the people who had been sent to the family camp was this young German Jew called Freddy Hirsch, mm. who was very good at, at working and organising with children. And he managed to persuade the German commandant of the camp that if he were given a, a, a what they called a block or a barrack where the children from the family camp could be sent during the day to play, um, then the parents would be much happier in their work mm. and they could work more. Yeah. And the Germans again thought, well, this is not a bad idea. Um, and so it was set up. Um, but what the Germans didn't know was that Freddie's plan was actually to try and set up some sort of a, well, it couldn't be a school, but something like that where the kids could go on learning and doing things other than just playing, I guess. Playing, absolutely. Now, he had control of something forbidden in the camp, this is Freddie, and, quote, these items so dangerous that, they were, that their mere possession is a death sentence. They cannot be fired, nor do they have a sharp point or a heavy end. What were the items that Freddie Hirsch had? The items he had were eight books. Eight books. Eight books. Weird yes. collection of books. They were books that, that basically had been taken away from the prisoners who, who, have, who smuggled books in, in their suitcases when they arrived. They were taken away and there was a huge warehouse where all, all sorts of items mm. were stored. And so sometimes the prisoners working in this area were able to remove things and they knew that Freddie had a a sort of a school going. So they smuggled these books, which were, I mean, they were weird. It was the most extraordinary collection. A book of geometry, H.G. Wells' A Short History of the World, a Russian grammar book, a French novel, Freud, a book of uh, new tales of psychoanalytic theory, a Russian novels, and a few pages of a Czech novel not suitable for girls. Indeed. It's pretty <laughs> tried to tell Dita, yes. Um, she nearly... Oh, well, no, why? What, page 28. Mm-hmm. What was this importance of books? What, why was that said to be? Well, I think um, Dita puts it quite well. Uh, or actually, it's Iturbe who says it here. Uh, when she's given these books, um, she picks them up and, and uh, they say, Dita caressed the books. They were broken and scratched, worn, with reddish-brown patches of mildew. Some were mutilated. But without them, the wisdom of centuries of civilization might be lost. Geography, literature, mathematics, history, language, they were precious. She would protect them with her life. And it was nearly going to cost her a life because at one stage, some of the books were out and there was a, 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 a check by the guards. They leave no stone unturned, even checking behind the drawings that hang on the wall from makeshift barbed wire nails. No one says a word. There is only the sound of the guards rummaging around in the hut. It smells of dampness and mildew, of fear too. It's the smell of war. So Dieter actually used some of her bed rations and, and to give to a seamstress. What was she doing there? Well, she, she needed some system for hiding these books if she didn't have time to get them back to the place where they're hidden in, in, in Freddie's little room. And so she organises with this wonderful old woman to make pockets on the inside of her, her dress, basically, um, which she can always stick them in if she has to. Yeah. So she becomes the librarian of Auschwitz. It's here that I should add that the story was researched and written by Antonio 
Iturbe. 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 See, he's Spanish. So, Lilith Waits, what brings you into the picture? Uh, well, I um, have spent most of my life uh, from the time I was at university studying Spanish um, mm. and um, an academic, uh, concentrating on contemporary Spanish literature. Um, and so whenever I was in Spain and I had the chance, I would try and just see what was out there and pick up a book. And um, I happened to pick up this book, which had come out not long before, and in Spain, and I read it. And I was absolutely convinced that it was the sort of book that needed to be translated into English. Um, and unfortunately, as you probably all know, there aren't many books being translated into English generally. Um, and it's very hard to find a publisher. Um, but through a very long process, it turned out that a very good friend of mine from the days when I was living in Calgary, um, by this stage was in New York and had worked her way up Henry Holt to be the vice president of Young Children's uh, Books. And I happened to visit her after I'd been on a uh, translation residency and was frustrated, I guess, Mm. as we always are as translators, that books that should be translated weren't. And I mentioned this book to her and I said, look, if I send you a summary and some information, would you pass it on to your people in the adult section? Um, Maybe, you know, that way somebody might actually pay attention. Um, And so I sent her a synopsis and a bit of a sample and virtually right away she wrote back and she said, but the protagonist here is a 14-year-old. This would be perfect as a young adult book. Mm. And so we, she negotiated, we all negotiated, because Turbury wrote it actually as an adult book, although it could be anything, I guess, in that sense. And, um, and so we all got the go-ahead, and that's where it all started. I think at this stage I better tell, say that Lilith was awarded the Spanish Order of Civil Merit by the King of Spain in December a few years ago for her con- contribution to the promotion of Spanish literature and culture here in Australia. Mm. And you're working on something else now, something about Spanish writers that have had some influence in, by being in Australia. Well, one of the things that, that I was doing, uh, or have been doing over the years, uh, partly because of my connection with writers and agents and so on, has been to encourage festivals, uh, and if that didn't work, then uh, universities, to bring some of these writers out to take mm. part in writers' festivals, um, which is difficult because they have to speak at least a minimum of English. They have to have a book translated, um, and those two don't always go together in Spain. (laughs) Um, So anyway, so I just kept thinking as all these writers kept coming out, and and, brilliant writers, most of them, Mm. that really we need to do something about this. And I happened to coincide at one stage with the then cultural uh, representative at the Spanish embassy, and we were talking and I said, you know, we should try and get these people to write something that has a sort of a Spanish, uh, an Australian feel to it because a lot of them did manage to spend more than just a few days here. And so I wrote to them and um, about 16 of them wrote back and said, yep, they'll do something. So All right. I okay. get to translate it. So oh. they wrote it in Spanish and I translated <laughs> and and now we're, we're almost done and uh, we've now got to try and find publishers. Publishers. Oh, it's always a little old. <laughs> now, look... I want to go back to uh, the book that you have translated, mm. the, the Librarian of Auschwitz, and sort of talk about you know your choice of words and this bit that I, because you you choose the way that it's, mm. it says, and this this is sort of just one sentence that reminds you that it's actually based on fact, and this is there's no documentary evidence 
to indicate if Rudy Rosenberg cried. It's a strong sentence. And that Rudy Rosenberg, you know, he escaped. He, he, he wrote papers to um, the Jewish authorities in Hungary and they sort of dismissed him and got more Jews on the transports. Oh, and he went to he evacu- was evacuated to England, and uh, it, we find out then that um, you know he, he pr- took his papers, but all they said is, "Well, basically, we'll we'll try and get do what we can, do what we can, make the war faster or something." But there was just nothing much. So his story was apart from hmm. um, uh, Dorrit's story, which in itself was really quite remarkable. Well, I think that the the interesting thing about the book is that while the focus is on this sort of 14-year-old, and she's not really an adolescent, because given what she's been through, you know, as she herself says, when when I think it's when Freddie tells her that really perhaps maybe she shouldn't read The Good Soldier Schweik, and she looks at him and she says she wishes she had glasses that she could put down at the end of her nose, and she said, Freddie, are you seriously telling me that when I watch the corpses travelling back and forth and when I watch, you know, the crossing with our food vans and things, that this is a book I shouldn't be reading? <sighs> yeah. So and the book, of course, is uh, that we're, we're talking about is The Librarian of Auschwitz. It's translated by Lilith Thwaites. And thankfully, there is a publisher, Pan Macmillan Australia. So it's just a, an interesting book because she meets Mengel. She meets a lot mm-hmm. of... Oh, it's, it's horrific. So really, from one of our darkest chapters of human history comes the extraordinary storage of courage and hope. Thank you, Lila. Thank you. I don't know if there's any true segue I can use. Courage and hope is part of the, my character's uh, um, attributes, but those on the autism spectrum often face great challenges in society. Such was the case for the character Don Tillman in The Rosie Project. He set, uh, uh, about, he set about finding himself a wife. He confronted becoming a parent... In the rosy effect, he did so by going down to a park and taking pictures of the children. Uh, But now Don Tillman's son is 11 years old and we learn about how he goes about raising Hudson in the rosy result. The author, of course, is Graham Simpson, who now has quite a trilogy here. So, Graham, welcome back to 3CR. Good to talk again, David. Now, this is probably the most confronting of all of the three books, you go to the very heart, in many ways, of those uh, with autism and how they're treated in society. I was coming on after Lilith and you say this is a confronting book. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I feel like Lenny Bruce had a little sketch where he came on after Dame Vera Lynn had said, you know, about the boys who didn't come back and he's the dirty American comedian who's now going to entertain the audience. Um, but, but look, I think... One has to be very careful about drawing parallels about oppression. Um, There's a scene in The Rosie Result um, in which Don is accused of being a racist. And I've had feedback that just says, Graham, you're trying to compare racism with the oppression that autistic people face. You can't do that because racism is so much worse and so on. And I would come back and say, this is not a competition. This is not about who is most oppressed. But that uh, comparison or that uh, incident in the lecture theatre where he does a genetics demonstration because he just happened to have time at the end of the lecture is misinterpreted. Uh, it's filmed. It's been sort of deliberately set up by somebody antagonistic and it goes viral. But it's about, in many ways, the political correctness that is imposed on him. Um, but then how far does that political correctness go when raising children and what is appropriate and such like. 
Well, you know, political correctness is, is a term that tends to be used by people on one side of the argument. And, and let me say that that scene has been responded to by my editors around the world in quite different ways, all the way from, well done, calling out political correctness, all the way to, we don't want to publish this book because we can't have your protagonist who we're supposed to love doing what he just did. So, so this is a range of views, and what I wanted to do on the page, in fact, was not to take a, a position on it. I wanted the, the reader to think about it, but what I did want people to, to see was that the things that Don Tillman, who we've laughed with and at in the first couple of books because of his social incompetence, as he'd put it, that that social incompetence doesn't always translate into being a truth-teller, calling out hypocrisy and so forth. Sometimes it translates into... Um, inadvertently causing serious pain to people. Because he sees things in scientific terms rather than the subjectivity and objectivity of how uh, others uh, deal with situations. I think he would almost always put being right or even being clever ahead of what the impact might be on other people's feelings. But you then confront, um, or you have Rosie, his wife, and Don attending a meeting about autism. And in some ways, this is a very challenging uh, meeting for the reader as well as for Don and Rosie because um, we have a situation where parents are looking at how to deal with children on the autism spectrum and you go from uh, some parents giving their children 25 hours a week of extra tuition but then there's a radical presenter who says, I'm not interested in anyone trying to cure me of who I am. People listening who are in the autism community will know all about these arguments, about whether we regard autism as a, as a defect, whether it's something we try to cure, or whether we regard it as a difference, which is something where we try to give people skills and support in order to live the best possible lives. I mean, the, the premise of the book, just for people listening, the premise of the book is essentially that... Uh, Hudson, Don and Rosie's 11-year-old son is struggling at school. School has said maybe an autism assessment is in order. Don has said, you've got to be kidding, he's just like me. And, and of course, that sets two people off on, on journeys of discovery. But but this autism um, uh, discussion seminar they go to is simply a dramatisation of what I think are central issues in how we as a community deal with autism. Well, is being autistic different that has to be cured or is it really um, an ag- acknowledging people for who they are? And the, in the uh, the neurodiversity movement would strongly argue that it's about saying um, diversity is is part of the human condition. If you like, we, our starting point is that we accept that people are going to be different in, in a range of presentations, but equally that some will have disabilities, and some of those disabilities will be a result of the way that we structure society. Hmm. Now you. We've already mentioned Hudson, but I think it's significant that Hudson is 11 and basically developing um, from, well, a child to an adult. Good, look, it was a good time a good time to come into the story. By the way, I should add, it's a comedy. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, but it well, raises uh, some very essential well, of issues. Of course, of course. Tim Ferguson was my comedy teacher and he always used to emphasise, I mean, he does comedy about his multiple sclerosis, that you can tackle very, very serious issues in a, in a yeah. comedic manner and that's, that's a long, a long-standing tradition. But... I was looking for um, the right age for the kid and I remembered my own life at 11 years old very, very clearly, the year I turned 12, and I thought that'll be my reference point because I remember still how life was like there, whereas I might have struggled more to distinguish between 7 and 8 or 14 and 16. 
But Hudson is going through a whole range of changes. Uh, he mm. likes to work alone. Uh, he is not necessarily sports-minded. Does that mean he can't socialise? And all of a sudden, people are starting to label him. But is what Hudson is going through, is that simply a normal process of maturation? Well, that's the question, of course. I mean, Don's view is he went through all of this. He's never regarded himself as autistic, although most readers do. Um, and and so and the question then becomes, of what's the value of the label? And Don is very, very strongly against it because he's been labelled with all sorts of incorrect things when he struggled growing up as, as being... Uh, possibly schizophrenic or schizoaffective or bipolar disorder, OCD and so forth, as they tried to figure out what was almost certainly him being on the spectrum um, at the time. So, And look, labels are, are a curious thing. Um, adults that I know who have been diagnosed later in life as being on the spectrum have typically, it's happened because they've sought a diagnosis. They've realised something wasn't quite fitting or they didn't understand and they're hugely relieved typically to have that diagnosis things now make sense but you can't necessarily translate that to an 11 year old and when there are external factors such as um, funding for the school and so forth Mm -hmm. for disability it complicates it and no way I'm saying you shouldn't seek a diagnosis I'm just saying let's not rush to but the minute you seek a diagnosis you provide a label which the child in fact may grow out of so you've got to allow the child time to evolve and develop. Well, well, um, autism is seen today as being a lifelong condition. Um, but, and I've got into great trouble for this because people have interpreted me as saying autism could be cured. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, though, we don't have good data on these things because we've done so little study of adults on the spectrum. So, yes, I think the, the gut feeling we have is that it's a lifelong condition, but at the same time... what's Hudson may change. Yeah. We have Don changing. Uh, he's cheering on his son in a sports event, uh, um, an event he didn't know his son was involved in. Um, and there's Don realising that the sort of behaviour and the excitement and the jubilation, which he'd previously couldn't understand, he's now part of. Yeah, look, I tend I tend to think, um, rightly or wrongly, of, of autism in terms um, of, and particularly autism which doesn't require very high support levels, um, as being about strengths and weaknesses. And strengths and weaknesses are, are things that we can work on. If you're not, you know, if you're a sports person and you're not very good at one aspect of the sport, what do you do? You work and work and work on it, and you then find that you're better than almost everybody else around at it. Um, you get, you know, Don. We come to the story 12 years after we first meet Don, 13 years after we first meet Don. It's important that we see that Don, in living with a partner for most of that time, has developed, has changed. He's a smart person. He's not some static um, fixture who's just defined by his autism. And and for me, that was crucial, that that Don isn't defined by his autism. Hudson, who we have a question mark over, regardless of whether he is on the spectrum or not, is not defined by that. It's a really important part of him. But it's not all of them by any means. And it's, uh, Hudson's development can't necessarily be controlled by his parents. And ah. so, <laughs> well, well, well this, is, this is the question. This is not a book just about autism. It's a book about parenting. It's a book about a lot of things. But one of the key things is parenting. And when I was growing up, the idea was that you moulded the child. Give me the child till I are seven, I will show you the man. And, and 
let's get the gender right too. And a man was capable of doing various things. And school knew this, and my dad knew this, and I knew this, and I had to spend an awful lot of time doing things that I didn't want to do so I could be a, a real man. Many, many of those skills, just like learning algebra at school, have not proved all that useful to me in, in, the, real, in the real world. I, you know, the amount of time I spent learning to swim I don't need it. I don't like the, the water all that much. So today we're much more inclined to say, let the child be themselves. Mm. But what happens when the child being themselves is causing them serious distress, um, is causing others distress? Or when others impose on the child a certain expectation mm. of behaviour and such, or when they have um, theories that have been rejected. So Hudson has a friend, Blanche, whose parents are anti-vaxxers. And you have a reason for putting that in. Well, I think anti-vax slips into the book because of the spurious connection that's sometimes made between vaccination and autism. And, you know, that pays off eventually on the page. Um, I mean, I was almost scared to put it in because it almost raises the idea there's a controversy, which there isn't. There is, you know, it's, it's been clearly demonstrated that, um, that the whole vaccination autism thing is spurious. But, you know, I thought, okay, it's out there. We'll, we'll put it on the page. We'll have a character in there who's an anti-vaxxer, and we'll give them their their, their day in court. But this is it. Uh, adults take on ideas, not just about um, vaccination or whatever, and then impose that uh, as a belief system, which isn't necessarily uh, supported by science or research or proof. Yeah, so this is just playing into that idea of parenting. So Hudson's best friend has parents who would probably say they weren't trying to mould their daughter, but of course she's not going to be immunised because that's not part of the values that they belong to. And I just wanted to pick up some of those sorts of ideas that Don and Rosie have got, I think in many ways, fairly typical um, middle-class academic values, and I didn't want them to be the only set of values on the page. But also then, all parents are concerned about their child, the raising of the child, whether they're doing the right thing or not, because it's such a fraught sort of position to be in. Well, they should be concerned. And that's probably the... the my, my wife, who's a psychiatrist, does a lot of um, parent-children sort of stuff, would say probably the first thing is that they are concerned. That's a heck of a good start. Yes. <laughs> uh, it would, yeah. And, and not then making judgments. Hudson, in many ways, uh, becomes his own man, shall we say. Yes. Um, there's a development in Hudson and there's a development in Don, as you would expect in a novel that you, where these people are on journeys of discovery. At the end of it, we expect some discovery. But there's certain aberrant things in his uh, experience, in his growing up. He ends up, well, not ends up, but he frequents the cocktail bar <laughs> that Don and Rosie have established because Don's lost his job or has sort of taken leave from his position because of the pressure he was yes, so, so Don's established the cocktail bar as an easy way as he sees it to um, to fix the, the income problem so that's organised but that was interesting because I had my first readers some of whom are parents of, of children of the, roughly the same sort of age as Hudson they say you can't have him hanging out in a cocktail bar and so what I tend to do with those sorts of criticisms is deal with them directly on the page so in fact he's hanging out with a couple of older guys um, who are gay, by the way, um, and they go over and they say to Rosie one night, "Look, we just wanted you to let you know that we've got his, you know, we've got him covered. I mean, he's probably in better than most kids. That is, one of his parents is here all the time, keeping an eye on him, and he's doing his work. But he's also <clears throat> learning. He's interacting. The criticisms that were levelled at school <clears throat> that he wasn't interacting, he's overcome in many ways because he's found skills, he's found things he can do. And, and in Donny is a very sympathetic father." 
um, who's prepared to look outside the box and not say this is standard parenting, he can't be in a bar, but rather, okay, he's here, what's he doing, what's his behaviour, is this helping him, is it good for him? And, and Hudson himself is prepared to argue his case. Yeah, and you don't actually have to extrude a child through a sort of system. Mm-hmm. There are a range of things they can get involved in which will allow them to learn, which is great. Yeah. Now, the last question, because we are going to have to end the cocktails. It's a tradition with the Rosie Project anyway that um, there was a, a, a cocktail. Was it a launch or you did have parties yeah, on a cocktail? Yeah, yeah. These books are unfortunately soaked in booze, which probably reflects something <laughs> but, about the author, and I would not recommend it. Are you going to have another cocktail party as a celebration to which we can come along as we did last time? <laughs> well, maybe for the next book. So with the Rosie result, I've said this is the last book in the series but we are thinking there's been a, a huge demand for Don Tillman's standardised meal system recipe book with cocktails we must have the recipe book the book is The Rosie Result the author Graham Simpson and it's from Text Publishing <laughs> and I was speaking with Lilith Thwaites the translator of The Librarian of Auschwitz